Okay. Um, we're going to talk about missions a little bit here tonight. And we're going to talk about key developments in the SBC. And um, then we'll talk about whatever you want to, if we have any time left. Um, I'm going to make myself a spot right here because it's easier for me to do that. Um, Southern Baptists, well, Baptists in general, have been known as a missions people. And a key development in that took place beginning in the year 1792 in England. So I have to touch back on this English thing again for just just briefly. Uh, a pastor in England named William Carey. Uh, he was a bivocational pastor. Um, he was a cobbler as well as a pastor. And he, uh, he wasn't an, an especially good speaker. In fact, the first couple of times that he preached for ordination, they turned him down. But eventually he became uh, a key figure in the development of Baptist missions. Now, Carey was not much to look at. He, he balded when he was a teenager, and he was very, very poor, as many Baptists were back in those days. And so he made himself a wig out of a piece of red carpet, and he would wear that red piece of carpet on his head that apparently was rather frightful to look at, but I guess he figured it was better than being bald. Uh, Paul, you might want to consider that at some point. <laughs> maybe, maybe Jessica can find a piece of red carpeting at some uh, remains out there at a carpet place. But, uh, uh, but Carey was, in many ways, a very brilliant man. Now, imagine the work of a cobbler. He's sitting at a bench day in, day out, making shoes, repairing shoes. And Carey had a remarkable innate ability as a linguist. And so over the space of several years, he taught himself to read and write and speak 12 different languages. Uh, in fact, he sort of set a goal at one point, one new language per year. So he learned the ancient tongues, uh, Greek and Hebrew and Latin, uh, Syriac, also an ancient uh, tongue that the Bible was translated into, and then a number of modern European languages like French and German and Italian and Spanish and so, so on, which would stand him in very good stead for the life work that he eventually was called to. Uh, eventually, Carey was called to pastor a small church, very small church. And uh, the churches in England in those days, even as they were in the U.S. about the same time, were oftentimes divided up into associations. And so you'd have an association of churches that like in in the U.S., um, 
or in, in America and then eventually the U.S., you had the Philadelphia Association, several counties around, around Philadelphia of uh, the Baptist churches would make up that association. The Charleston Association, the Sandy Creek Association, those were the three prominent American associations early on. And England had those kind of associations as well. Now, Kerry was part of the particular Baptist tradition, which meant that he was a Calvinistic Baptist. And uh, as he read his Bible, he increasingly, increasingly became convinced that the Baptists were not doing their part. In fact, nobody was in reaching people from benighted other countries, places where the gospel was not being preached, to reach those places with the gospel. And so in 1792, he preached a famous sermon. It's called the Deathless Sermon. He didn't call it that, but that's what it has gone down uh, as being referred to. It came from this text, Isaiah 54, verses 2 and 3, where the prophet, uh, God speaking to the prophet, says, Enlarge the place of your tent, stretch out the curtains of your dwellings, Spare not, lengthen your cords, strengthen your pegs, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your descendants will possess nations and will resettle the desolate cities. Now, Kerry took that passage to mean, and undoubtedly it, at one level it does mean this, that the message of the gospel should go out to the different parts of the world. And remember that in England in the late 1700s, uh, England had an empire. It was the British Empire. And there was an old saying that they had back in those days uh, that, that was common for a long time afterwards. The sun never sets on the British Empire, which meant that all around the world, whether you were in Asia or Africa or Europe or North America, uh, somewhere where the sun was shining, there was part of the British Empire. Even after the American Revolution, Canada remained a part of the British Empire. In fact, Canada never constituted as a separate nation till anybody know what year, you Canadians? Tanner, what year? Did Canada become a separate nation? 1950. And he says, well, that was before I was born. You can't blame, can't blame me for not knowing that. Well, that was before I was born, too, by the way. Um, so, <laughs> not before. So, anyway, what uh, Kerry did is in 1792 is he preached a message at his association saying, reading from this text, and he had two points. And the two points very simply were these. Expect great things, attempt great things. Now you'll read sometimes it's expect great things from God, attempt great things for God, for God. That's the way it's been revised. But it just was expect great things, attempt great things. 
And what he was doing is he was calling on his association to support an international mission project. Now, he conceived of this project as going to India, which was a British, British colony at the time. Uh, according to one report, questionable whether this actually happened, but I'm going to give you the standard version that when he was finished preaching that one of the hyper-Calvinist brethren, and we've talked about hyper-Calvinism in here, one of the hyper-Calvinist brethren uh, stood up and said to Carrie, sit down, young man. When God gets ready to save the heathen, he'll do it without your help. Well, that wasn't good enough for Carrie. Staunch Calvinist though he was, he had read his Bible and Scripture teaches that God calls the elect out through the preaching of the word. And so the, they did what every good Baptist group does when they can't figure out what else to do. They took an offering and raised about three pounds, 10 shillings or something like that for the work of foreign missions, as it was called in those days. And talks proceeded. And in the next year, Carey became the first modern foreign missionary, or in other words, the modern foreign, foreign missionary movement was launched through the work of William Carey as he left and took his family with him to India. Now, this was a monumental work. Um, to be from India in those days and to be a Hindu, those were the same thing. Because Hinduism was part of the culture. It wasn't like in America where we have American culture and then we have a variety of different religious traditions, even a variety of different types of Christian religious traditions. To be a, an Indian was to be a Hindu. And so it was a very difficult task that Kerry set for himself. He labored for seven years before he had the first convert a man by the name of Krishna Pal. And after this man was converted, then little by little the trickle began and the tr trickle became a stream and the stream became a flood. And today there are literally millions and millions of people in India who are Christians because one man 240-some years ago, uh, in fact, 240 years ago, decided... Uh, 230 years ago, I'm better at theology and math, uh, decided that God was calling upon the Christian people of England to evangelize the Indian subcontinent. Now, it's not like they didn't have people from England there. And, of course, the official Church of England was the Anglican Church. We've talked about that. But there were no Anglican missionaries in India. In fact, there were no Anglican missionaries. This literally was the beginning of the modern foreign mission movement. There had been occasions in history where there had been missionaries, and they'd gone to various parts of unevangelized uh, segments of the world, but this was the start of the modern movement. Now... That's all I'm going to say about Kerry. Well, 
we could spend a lot of time talking about his work at the uh, Sam for Mission, and uh, it would be a, a worthwhile conversation. But we have other fish to fry, and the pastor would like to have Wednesday nights back here at some point in the year 2022. And so uh, we're going to leave the English there with their foreign mission movement. Now, in the U.S., not long after mission work began with the English in England, in the U.S., a similar kind of development took place. And it did begin to influence other denominational groups. Remember that in New England at this time, the state church was congregational. In fact, there was an official state congregational church in uh, Massachusetts till 1833. In spite of the First Amendment, it said the government shall, Congress shall pass no law respecting an establishment of religion. That was addressing the federal Congress, not necessarily state Congresses. So Massachusetts had the, was the last state in the U.S. that had a state church, 1833. Connecticut had disestablished its state church in uh, 18. 14, 18, 16, I forget the exact year, but right in there somewhere, Massachusetts held out longer than others. But what was happening was, even there in New England, they had begun to send out congregational missionaries. Now, they didn't want to, you know, horn in on what was happening in India uh, that the English were attempting to accomplish. You know, you wouldn't want to move in next door to William Carey, like moving to India would have put you next door. So what the American missionaries did was they they targeted the next nation to the east, which was Burma. And so in 1814, two young men with their wives set sail for Burma as Congregationalist missionaries. One was named Luther Rice, and the other was named Adoniram Judson. Now, to sail from the U.S., from New York Harbor, say, to um, Burma or to India, it's a long trip. You've got to sail around the Cape of Good Hope on the southern tip of Africa. And so it was about a month-long journey. Well, what else are you going to do when you're on a journey, except at least for these two young men, uh, who didn't sail on the same ship. They, they sailed on different ships. But both of them began to study their Greek New Testament very carefully on the trip over. And when they got to Burma, they met, they met up. Once they arrived, they met up. And I don't know whether they went to a coffee shop or where it was that they met, but they sat down together. And Judson said, well, it's really good to be off the ship, and it's good to be here. I'm looking forward to my work with you, uh, Luther Rice, but I have some bad news. What's your news? Well, on the way, studying my Greek New Testament, I became a Baptist. And Luther Rice looked in at an hour, and he said, well, you know, on my ship, on the way over, studying my Greek New Testament, I became a Baptist.
rest. <laughs> and so they both had to ride home to Massachusetts and resign their position because they could no longer practice infant baptism. So being men of integrity, they were going to take somebody's mission money and uh, not represent them on the mission field. And so they they wrote to the Congregationalists back home. And they also wrote to some uh, uh, people that they knew, pastors that they knew, who were Baptists in the uh, in America, in the United States. And they said, you know, here we are, we're congregational missionaries, we got our, ma our degree, would have been a Bachelor of Divinity degree back then, uh, from Andover Seminary, we're both over here, and we don't really want to come home, but we don't have any visible means of support. Is there some way that you could put together a mission endeavor, a concerted mission endeavor? And so in 1814, during the summer of that year, Baptists uh, from mainly the eastern seaboard, most of them from Pennsylvania and New York, but some from as far south as Carolina and Virginia, got together and they, they organized what they called the Baptist General Missionary Conference. Now, it had a much longer name, but uh, we won't, I won't bore you with that. And the way that eventually it became shortened was it became known as the Triennial Convention. And it became known as the Triennial Convention because it met once every three years. So in other words, they had missionaries, but because of the length of distance to travel, I mean, you consider you got Baptists as far west as Kentucky and Tennessee and uh, western parts of Ohio and all up and down the eastern seaboard. It wasn't like they could just pull up, you know, every summer and go on a vacation to go to the meeting with the other Baptists. They met once every three years. Now, once the, once the uh, convention was organized, there were some, particularly Southerners, who argued that we should have two mission organizations. We should have two conventions. One convention of Baptists in the North and another convention of Baptists in the South. There were sectional differences. There were cultural differences. And there was distance. And the way that it turned out was every year the convention would be held, or every three years, the convention would be held in Philadelphia or New York City or Boston or sometimes all the way south as far as Richmond, Virginia. Well, that made a real hardship on the Southerners because, well, just to give you an example, uh, the, the common means of transportation across long distances in those days was by stagecoach. If you journeyed from Nashville, Tennessee to Philadelphia by stagecoach, it took three weeks one way to get there. Then you got a week of meetings. Then you got a journey back three weeks, which meant that you were going to be gone probably about two months. Even though it only came along once every three years, 
that was a hard pill to swallow. And even though by the 1840s, railway travel is starting to come in, it wasn't efficient, it didn't reach all parts, so you'd normally have to get a train between two cities and a stagecoach that would take you a ways, and then more trains, and then more stagecoaches. The northern uh, railway lines didn't use the same gauge of track as the southern railway lines, so you, you couldn't take a train say, from North Carolina to Pennsylvania uh, because they didn't use the same gauge. In other words, the, the rails were, were farther apart in one railway system than they were in another. Had not, all that had not been standardized. And so that, that became a perennial problem for the first 30 years of the uh, triennial convention. But then another problem came along that was the big problem. And you can spell that with the capital B-I-G. And that was the problem of slavery. Now, as you know, I don't have to tell any of you this, you went to school, uh, slavery was an issue in the South. Slavery once had been an issue in northern colonies and even northern states, but one by one, the northern states had outlawed the slave trade and even outlawed the ownership of slaves. And so uh, slavery tended to move south, especially when in 1793, an entrepreneuring young man who just recently graduated from Yale by the name of Eli Whitney came up with a new invention called the cotton gin. And the cotton gin separated the little uh, hard pieces of, of the cotton stem from the cotton balls themselves. And it was basically, it looked like a little organ grinder. You put the cotton in the top, you turn the crank, and what you get out is nice fluffy cotton without all the stems and all of that. So it, it diminished the amount of labor that was required to process cotton into textiles by about 10 times. That's how much more efficient the, the cotton gin was than it was doing it by hand, where they just had to pick these things out and pick them out and pick them out. Uh, one person could process 50 pounds of cotton in a single day, Whereas previously, it would take that same person almost two weeks to process 50 pounds of cotton. That meant that the, the southern colonies, and you need a long, hot, uh, wet growing season in order, for, in order to grow cotton, uh, meant that the southern states now became much more financially wealthy. Uh, northern states were heavy into industry. Southern states were he heavy into agriculture. And, of course, what this meant was a, a vast increase in the slave labor force in the South after 1793. And uh, <clears throat> that sectional difference, that racial difference between North and South would wind up having a big impact on literally all of the major denominations, 
but more on Southern Baptists than the others. During the Civil War that took place 1861 to 1865, <coughs> all of the nationwide denominations split between northern branches and southern branches during the war. So you had northern Presbyterians, southern Presbyterians, northern Episcopalians, southern Episcopalians, northern Methodists, southern Methodists, on and on and on. But southern ba but Baptists had split in 1845. And they split because there were two cases, one from Alabama and one from Georgia, where there had been an effort uh, on the part of um, Baptists in the South to be appointed to the mission boards of the Triennial Convention. And in both cases, the Triennial Convention, and remember when the convention met, it met in those northern cities, there were more Baptists from the north there than Baptists from the south for the obvious reasons we've talked about, they were turned down. And so Baptists in the South became angered by that. And their conclusion, after the, the uh, 1844 Triennial Convention meeting, uh, they came to the conclusion, if we're going to be able to send people from the, from the South, especially people who, who own slaves. And in both of these cases, the one in Alabama and the one in Georgia, the persons who wanted to, to do mission work were slaveholders. But remember that slaveholding and slave owning was not illegal in the U.S. at the time. Not defending it. Please don't go out here and say, oh, we had this teacher here on Wednesday night. He was trying to defend racial slavery. No, I'm not defending. I'm just saying it was not against the law. And because of the cultural factors and everything else that were involved in it, uh, the decision was simply made that maybe it's time to, to divide. So in 1845, meeting in Augusta, Georgia, uh, 293 representatives from a variety of different Baptist churches and organizations in the South met at Augusta and decided to form the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, if you keep up with the papers or read denominational press or read the Wall Street Journal, or the New York Times editorial page, or any of those kinds of things, then you know that Southern Baptists have endured a lot of negative publicity over the fact that our convention was, at least in part, based on slavery. And the fact is that those criticisms are valid. Now, once you plug in all the other factors, you can sort of come to the conclusion, well, I see why they did it, but there were other groups like Quakers that had already made their decisions that they weren't going to support slavery. And there were a lot of Baptists that had made that decision as well, mostly Baptists in the North, not too many Baptists in the South. 
And of course, if you know the story of Abraham Lincoln, you know that though he was born in Kentucky, which was a state in which slavery was legal, legal when he was born, his father moved him and his family to Illinois, a state where it was illegal to own slaves. Okay, so you can put all that into perspective as you try to sort of think about what it means to be a Southern Baptist. But the fact is that Southern Baptists formed to a large degree over the slavery issue. The distance issue was there. There are two or three others that historians will point you to, but sometimes when historians get their hands on something like this, they they make too much out of the minor issues. Okay, I think some of them have done that. So what are we what kind of perspective should we have? Well, the only perspective I think we can have is to take our lumps and say, you know what? Yeah, we, we did form over the issue of slavery. And the rest of the entire nation was convulsed in slavery on one side or the other. And we fought a war over whether or not we truly believed that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalien unalienable rights, among which are life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Now that's in our founding documents that go way back before the war, okay? And we've, we fought a war, and the side that defended the notion of unalienable rights won the war, and the side that fought to defend slavery, and by the way, they, they, the nice thing is, the church cannot disfellowship from me because I'm not a member of the church yet, but I'm just going to say this. Um, the fact is that we just have to take our lumps and say, okay, yeah, we were guilty of some things back there. I don't think we're, that, we're guilty of that today. I was at the 1995 Southern Baptist Convention that met in New Orleans and the Superdome where we voted to renounce slavery and the fact that our forefathers were, were guilty of supporting slavery, even though, guess what? My forefathers weren't guilty of it because my forefathers lived at, in 1865, my forefathers lived in England and Scotland and Germany and Poland. Didn't have any planter class over here. All right. And if I did, I'd hopefully be living in a lot bigger house today than I live in currently. So it's not it's not my it was not my war. It's not my parents' war. It's not my grandparents' war. It's not my great grandparents' war. So we have to put that in perspective. But then about every three or four years since then, it comes up at the SBC again. We take another vote saying, yeah, I know we renounced the fact that we began in slavery three years ago, but we're going to renounce it again. We're, and we're going to keep renouncing it and until 
finally a generation that come, will come along that doesn't blame us for that anymore. So that's where we are. All right, so Southern Baptist begins in, Southern Baptist Convention begins in 1845. And when it began, it had two organizations that were uh, founded the very same year at the very same convention. And they were what we called then the Foreign Mission Board and the Domestic Mission Board. The Foreign Mission Board, obvious, should be mission to foreign countries. Now, we have since rejected the term foreign because that sounds like a pejorative term. And we probably should have rejected that term. Now, it's the International Mission Board. I think that was a good decision also made in the 1990s. Domestic Mission Board later on was known as the Home Mission Board and now is today called the North American Mission Board. You got a scorecard out because you got to kind of have to have a scorecard to keep up with all this. Um, the, the international missions is self-explanatory. Domestic Mission Board or Home Mission Board or now NAM did mission work primarily in the earliest days among slaves. They they were committed to the to teaching slave children how to read. Among Native Americans, teaching Native American children how to read and evangelizing Native American tribes. And also they were busy at work doing missions on the frontier. Now in 1845, the frontier was Kansas and Texas. Okay. That was the frontier. Today it's you know, the planet Vulcan, I guess. I'm not sure. But, uh, uh, by the way, have you ever thought about the fact that all of the women in history that have ever won the Miss Universe pageant are all earthlings? Something to think about. I, I, I would vote for that, that Borg girl that was in the movie. She was... Was it Kira Sedgwick was the actress? I think she's kind of cute. Don't tell my wife I said that. Yeah. Well, she thinks Denzel Washington's cute, so if she can like Denzel Washington, I can like Kira Sedgwick. All right, so uh, now what happened then over the course of of the latter half of the 19th century. There were two major controversies that consumed or that impacted Southern Baptists. One was the anti-missions controversy. And what I mean by anti-missions is not that these people were necessarily against the idea of doing foreign missions, but they were against <coughs> the organization <clears throat> into societies. Or as the SBC developed it over time, a denominational approach to international missions. So in, in this anti-mission movement, the idea was 
that individual churches should send their own missionary. But they should not meet together with other churches and together support the same missionary. Your church sends a missionary. Well, if, if that's the way we're going to do missions, only relatively wealthy churches can do missions. So the way the, the British Baptists did it was they had a mission society. And what ha- would happen is you'd have a representative come around into your town once a year or twice a year, and they would announce, pastor would announce from the pulpit, the Baptist Missionary Society people are going to be in town this week, and we're going to uh, have a meeting with them and take an offering. That's, you know, taking an offering is, again, the thing the Baptists do best. Offerings and casseroles. I'm going to write a church, Baptist church history book one day on the influence of offerings and casseroles on the growth of Baptists in America. I would, uh, even before, I've always thought that good uh, book would be the, the, uh, the effect of uh, real cornbread versus cornbread with sugar. And so the Northern Baptists would put sugar in the cornbread. Southern Baptists would not put sugar in the cornbread. And the effect of that on the and, and since I lived in Louisville, which is on the Ohio, the other thing is Baptists in Indiana would eat white chili. Yeah, that's not right. No, I mean, that. That's there's there's, there's got to be a verse in Leviticus. <laughs> you know. I mean, chili has got to be done with pinto beans. You can throw a few kidney beans in if you need to. But so, so the anti-mission group. Now, the primary anti-mission movement, the the focus of it was with the Churches of Christ. Okay, Alexander Campbell was a Scotsman who came to America in the eighteen teens. And he became pastor of a Baptist church, but very quickly changed the theology of that Baptist church so that they didn't support mission societies, they didn't have Sunday schools, and they didn't have instrumental worship. Okay? And there's a reason why. Campbell said we can't do those. Anybody know what they are? What the reason is? It's not in the Bible. Where in the New Testament does it say that anybody had a guitar or a piano or anything else? Now, they're in the Old Testament at the temple, but they're not in the New Testament. And Alexander Campbell made a hard-line distinction between what's Old Testament and what's new. No Sunday schools. Okay. Now, I've been to a few Church of Christ churches. By the way, there's three groups that came out of Campbell's work. Church of Christ, Disciples of Christ, and the Christian Church. Okay. And basically, if you want to remember how to, dis- to distinguish between them, the churches of Church of Christ churches, Church of Christ are crazy. The disciples of Christ 
are lazy and the Christian church is hazy. Okay, so write that in the margin of your Bible and it'll serve you in good stead. Crazy, lazy, and hazy. All right, sounds like a 1960s rock and roll song, but... uh, the, but there was there were also other groups that stayed Baptist and were anti-mission. So uh, one of the more interesting was led by a guy named Daniel Daniel Parker. Uh, Daniel Parker was a, not a very tall man. Um, he wore a beard. He rarely took a bath. He was always looked really shabby. He chewed tobacco. And he usually had some tobacco juice dribbling off his whiskers. Um, And he formed a denomination called the Two Seed in the Spirit Predestinarian Baptists. The Two Seed in the Spirit Predestinarian Baptists. And his theology was you're either born with the cane seed or you're born with the Seth seed. And if you're born with the Cain seed, can't do anything for you. You've been born with the bad seed, that's why it's two seeds in the spirit and, and it's just it's just the way you are. It doesn't make any sense to try to evangelize the Cain seed people because they're all just going to hell. And by the way, that they pronounce that word with three syllables. Hi, y'all. All right, so that's the anti-mission group. There, there were others, but again, time escapes me here. Uh, the other movement that has had longer longevity was called the Landmark Movement. And the Landmark Movement that began in the 1850s and began here in Tennessee uh, the primary mover and shaker was a man named J.R. Graves, who pastored First Baptist Church of Nashville and was editor of one of the Baptist papers in the state of Tennessee. They had more than one in those days, uh, Baptist state paper. J.R. Graves argued that the only true churches are Baptist churches. Okay, and so now he wasn't saying that there are no Christians who are also Presbyterians or Methodists, but that their churches are not churches and their ministers are not gospel ministers. Their churches are religious organizations and their so-called ministers are just professional men who studied the Bible. And so the landmark movement argued that only Baptist churches are true churches. And one of the practices in those days was what was called a a share in the pulpit. So maybe once a year, you and the Presbyterian pastor in town would swap and you'd preach at his church and he'd preach at your church. But he can't preach at your church if he's not a gospel minister. And you shouldn't be preaching at his church if it isn't a church. Okay? 
So they were, they were opposed to sharing pulpits. They were opposed to uh, uh, open communion. If you've paid attention to uh, Pastor Bryant, when he stands up on a Sunday, first Sunday of the month, he'll say something like, if you're here today and you're a professing Christian, do you say you're a baptized, professor, baptized believer in Christ? Then we invite you to join us. But you don't make them show a card. Okay, bring me your credentials. You know, Irem Papier Bitta, you know, like the Nazi Gestapo would. Um, you don't have to do that. He, he just, and, and I, by the way, I agree with him. Whether that, I'm sure he's really relieved, but uh, I think it's the right approach to, to leave it up to the conscience of those who come. We're not going to check you out. You know, you don't have to bring a letter from your, your preacher back home. Uh, you're, if you tell us you're a baptized, professing believer in good standing at your church, then you're welcome to join with us. Well, the landmark guys said, no, only closed communion. Only, you can only ha admit someone to the table if they are a member of your local church in good standing. That is, they not under church discipline, and then whatever criteria you may have. You're here at least, you know, twice a month or whatever the criteria might be. That's closed. There are three views, open communion, closed communion. Those are the two and then close, which is sort of where we are as the middle group. We're the, we're the hazy group, I guess. <laughs> we're not crazy or the lazy. I've always been a little hazy on some things. And then the other issue that the landmarkers were uh, uh, very insistent about was alien immersion. Now you have to you have to kind of think about a time when we didn't have any assemblies of God. That denomination is still decades from beginning. We didn't have any quote Pentecostals. Uh, we didn't have any independent Bible churches. Okay. Uh, there weren't even any real we might today call community churches. Either you were Methodist or you were Presbyterian or you were Roman Catholic or you were Baptist. And the fact is that in many of those other non-Baptistic churches, if you joined their church and you said the, you went to the pastor and said, look, my family and I moved to town. We want to join this Presbyterian church. Uh, but our son, who is 12, uh, has never been baptized. And the reason is we couldn't agree about it. I was baptized by immersion as a Baptist. We want our son to be, to be baptized by immersion. Will you do that? And most Presbyterians would have done that. And even Methodists and Whiskey Palians and various other ones, they would have conceded to that request. But the landmarkers said 
That's alien immersion. Now, alien immersion is not baptizing E.T., okay? Alien immersion means being immersed in a non-true church, a non-Baptist church. And so uh, the landmarker said, can't accept that. If you were baptized, even by immersion, after your profession of faith in a Presbyterian church, because it wasn't a true church, What's your name, young man? Jacob. Jacob, were you baptized a Presbyterian? No. Okay. Why did you? Why did we even let him come to dinner tonight? I'm, I'm <laughs> having a hard time with it. I think we should have put him into outer darkness before the meal ever began. Had I known, I would have raised my finger in the sky. No, um, can't do that according to the landmark movement. Now. That movement's still with us. And you'll find it in small churches generally, in smaller communities around the South and the Southwest. Um, They're sometimes called missionary Baptists, foot-washing Baptists. Um... And by the way, I don't recommend we ever do foot washing. I did that once with a youth group. No, especially when you're washing the feet of young men who've been playing basketball all day. It's pretty, pretty nasty. So those were the two big controversies of the 19th century. Now, let's fast forward. Um, we didn't have a publication arm of the SBC until 1891. We'd tried a couple times. The Civil War interfered with it. They put them out of business. Uh, A couple of other attempts. But in 1891, J.M. Frost, who's a major Southern Baptist educator and key figure among Tennessee Baptists, um, was able to organize the first... Uh, ongoing publication board and it was known as the Baptist Baptist Sunday School Board. Okay. Some of you may be old like me and you remember going to the Baptist bookstore or you have literature back in some, you know, cobwebby nasty part of your closet at home that says published by the Baptist Sunday School Board. That was fa- that was formed in 1891. And they published Sunday School literature. By the way, Sunday School was um, not a... The, the, the anti-mission guys are right. You don't find the Sunday School in, in the New Testament. That's not a reason why we shouldn't have it. Sunday school, when it began in the late 1700s in England, was called Sunday school. Remember last week I talked about how we we mispronounce it. We say United States, whereas back then they said United States. Well, sun, we, we call it Sunday school. But back when it began, it was Sunday school. 
because the purpose of it was primarily to take the children of farmers who had to work in the fields with dad all during the week and couldn't go to school and to teach them reading and writing and arithmetic on Sunday. That was the purpose of Sunday school. But then eventually we get Sunday school. And back in the old days, you may have been in some old, older church buildings where the, all they have is an auditorium. And I'm talking about an old building, not like our building, but an old building. And all it's there is an auditorium and a baptistry. And that's because back in the days, they didn't have Sunday school classroom space. But then as Sunday school became Sunday school, now we had to have classroom space. So we built a, a education wing or a fellowship hall or something else where we could accommodate that. So the Baptist Sunday School Board was for the purpose of publishing Sunday school literature and books. Okay, that was... In 1891. Now, uh, beginning of the 20th century, we have some rather important uh, cultural differences that are becoming part of Western societies, especially in terms of the areas of uh, not just industrialization, but of the increase in people making their businesses into financially successful and profitable businesses. So we have business models developing. Now remember that in 1914 and 1918, there was a war in Europe, the Great War. We call it World War I. Actually, in my opinion, World War I and World War II were the same war with an intermission. Okay, we had the Great War, and coming out of the Great War, America was feeling its oats because we had gone over to France and Belgium and we kicked those Huns in the rear end, and we were responsible to a large degree for winning the war for the Allied powers. And so coming back, we sort of felt like we're bad. We can do anything we want to do. We are America. And we can accomplish stuff that nobody else can accomplish. There was a famous sermon preached by a Baptist pastor in Texas named J.B. Gambrell. And the sermon was called Baptists, America's Last Great Hope. And that's how we felt. So we came back from the war and we thought, well, we got to streamline ourselves. We got to make ourselves more efficient. And so a discussion was entered at the 1917 convention. And by this time, the Southern Baptists were meeting once. They were meeting every year, not every two years or every three years, but meeting every June every May, then later on every June. 
Um, and a discussion was entered into in 1917 saying, we need a central organizing body that can help us become more efficient. Now, before that happened, back in the days from 1845 up until 1925, that is for the first 80 years of the Southern Baptist Convention, um, remember we had the uh, Foreign Mission Board and we had the Home Mission Board, as they were called back then. And the question is, how did they raise money? A lot of churches, especially smaller rural churches, if you had asked one of the, uh, like the chairman of the deacons of the First Baptist Church of Podunk, Kentucky, uh, you know, what's your church's budget? He'd have looked at you like a calf looking at a new gate. What's a budget? Because they didn't think in terms of that. They thought in terms of got to pay the preacher's salary. And even salary was not necessarily a term that was being used. I, I pastored a small country church in Texas when I was working on, on my Ph.D. And we got down all the old minutes books. We found them in a closet, got them out, dusted them off. Back in the 1930s, we found the page where the church had voted on a pastor's compensation for the year. Here was the pastor, and I'm, I'm sure that my numbers are not quite right, but it was something along these lines. Pay the pastor $500 for the year. Give him 50 quarts of, of canned vegetables. That means by canned vegetables, the ones they put up. 30 chickens, a side of beef, a hog, uh, you know, and then on down the list. 20, 20 bolts of cloth, because every pastor's wife had to be able to sew back then. Uh, and that was compensation. You know, <laughs> it was basically 500 bucks and everything you throw in the back of your Studebaker. And uh, that was how pastors were paid in especially small town churches and rural churches. Uh, but now we had this focus on efficiency. And so they came up with the idea of appointing an executive committee. And that executive committee would be, and I've, if, if you look down at the bottom right, I've drawn a, a wheel. This is my beautiful artwork. And I, I spent weeks working on this, trying to perfect it. Uh, but it, it's, it's a wheel with, and I've given it five hubs or five spokes, but then it has a hub in the middle. And the hub in the middle is the executive committee. And the way it was to work and the way it has worked, and it's evolved over time, that all the money that came into the SBC month by month or year by year, or however often churches gave their, their money to the Southern Baptist causes, that money would be put into the account of the executive committee. And then by virtue of the vote of the messengers every year in June at the SBC, 
it would be apportioned out. And so the way it works today, and I'll give you this briefly because I want to touch on one more thing before I'm done. The way this works out today is about half of the money that comes into the Southern Baptist Convention is earmarked for international missions. Now, that sounds better than it really is. Because remember, we also have a state convention. And pretty regularly around the SBC, among the 36 or 37, I forget, do you remember exactly how many state conventions? Something like that. Because some states are have small enough numbers of churches they combine two or three or four states together. Um, but states make a decision every year. What percentage of the money that comes into their coffers do they pass on to the nationwide SBC cause? Okay, And it's fairly commonly about 60-40%. So about 60% stays with the state convention and then about 40% is passed on to the SBC. Well, that 40% goes to the executive committee and every month they write checks. And they write and half the money that comes into them goes toward the the International Mission Board. About 25%. We'll just use round numbers cuz I'm not good at math. We've already established that. About 25% goes toward the North American Mission Board. Then about 16% or so goes to the Southern Baptist Seminaries, of which there are six. Okay, The oldest one is the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, from which your pastor is a graduate and at which I taught for 15 years. Um, that was organized in 1859. Then, next, historically, Southwestern in Fort Worth, Texas, organized in 1908. Um, and then, in the 1940s, we added the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, which, oddly enough, is in the city of New Orleans. Gee. And we also added the Golden Gate Baptist Theological Seminary, which was in the city of San Francisco, but isn't anymore. It's now in Ontario, California. Not Ontario, Canada, but Ontario, California, uh, because the property where it sat on San Francisco Bay at $80 million, we decided at some point was... We'd be better off selling that and spending half the money on a better campus in Southern California. So we did that a few years ago. And then there was the um, Midwestern Baptist Seminary in Kansas City and the Southeastern Baptist Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina. So those are our six seminaries. So about 16%, 16 to 18% of our, of our budget goes toward the six seminaries divided up according to a convoluted percentage system that I neither will get into nor fully understand. 
Okay. Then I have this other category, the ERLC, Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, which handles things related to ethics and religious liberty. Uh, Okay. Again, big surprise. Public policy. Public policy. We have two, that organization has two offices, one in Nashville, one in D.C., so the D.C. office handles religious liberty issues. The president of the ERLC, in, when he's in D.C., meets with Congress people and gets a photo op with the president every now and then and uh, all that sort of stuff. And then they, they have several publications that deal with ethics issues. Uh, and then my other brilliant category is called assorted. And that's a few percentages, percentage points out of that total executive committee budget that deals with things like the Historical Commission and the Education Commission and, thing, and things you've probably never heard of. And since we don't spend a whole lot of money on them, don't care much about it either unless you happen to be an employee of that particular organization. So that that's how our apportionment is developed, but it goes through the executive committee. Now, if you watched the news over the last four months, you may be aware of the fact that the president of the executive committee, a man named Ronnie Floyd, resigned his position as president of the executive committee over some rather controversial type issues that your pastor would just love to discuss with you at another time. And because I don't really want to talk about it, uh, even if I had the time. But he resigned. And so when I said, I have information right up to date to yesterday, yesterday they appointed an African-American person who has pastored churches in Tennessee to be the interim president of the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention. Oy, you know, it it begins to sound like a business meeting after a while. Oh, gee, that's what it is. Okay, so uh, that's how financial issues are handled. If I had time, I'd draw another chart up here to show you when you give a certain amount of money, how much of that money goes to this, 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 and this. But we're out of time. But I want to touch on one thing before we're done, and that is uh, liberalism raising its head in the Southern Baptist Convention and the development of the conservative resurgence. Now, In the 1960s and 70s, and in some places even before that, if you had gone to a Baptist seminary, especially Southern or Southeastern or even Golden Gate, you would have studied under professors that didn't believe the Bible in the way that we believe the Bible. So, for instance, I could 
sit you down with some books, a stack of books, and point you to where this guy said, Jesus did not rise bodily from the grave. Or this guy that said, Jesus was not born of a virgin, but instead was conceived by a Roman soldier and a Palestinian peasant girl. Or, and on and on and on. I can take you to the list and show you a number of these kinds of things. And it's just the nature of the case that denominations tend to drift. And they never drift right. They always drift left. And we had seen it already with Northern Baptists in the early part of the 20th century. We had seen it with the Presbyterian Church USA, which is why we were talking about before this, the uh, dinner tonight, why the PCA formed in 1974. Um, and so there were a number of individuals who got, who, were, who got together periodically and, and tried to come up with a plan for stopping the drift to the left. And that always begins in the way SBC polity works with the election of a conservative president. Now, I don't have time to tell you why that is the case. But the way it works is the president nominates people to serve on a committee on committees. The next year, the committee on committees nominates people to serve on the committee of nominations. The next year, the people on the committee of nomina on nominations nominates the people to serve on the boards of trustees of the SBC institutions. Okay. Sound like government. I'm getting a headache, just <clears throat> not really. But that's the way it works. Okay, it's all kind of connected. So it's not one, any one individual that can change it, but that but it starts with one individual, a president elected by the messengers who go to the annual convention every year in June. In June. And he appoints this group, and then they or he nominates, they're elected, then they nominate, and they're elected, and they nominate, and they're elected. And if you get this happening on kind of like a, a loop, like row, row, row your boat, and that's really the way it works. It's like row, row, row your boat over and over and over and over, and that never stops until Jesus comes back. Then eventually you can have a situation where, because the boards of trustees of the seminaries, for instance, control whoever is the head of that institution, and that person controls who gets hired. And that's what happened, beginning in 1979. And so now, for 42 years, it'll be... 43 years, we will have had a series of conservative presidents elected who nominated people who then nominated people who then nominated people and so on that has stopped the liberal drift. 
Not for that. I never would have taught a Southern seminary because, you know, they didn't want some hardcore redneck fundamentalist-sounding professor of theology teaching at their school. They wanted effete, snotty-nosed liberals teaching at their schools. And uh, that's a little harsh. Okay, but you can sort of figure that out. So anyway, that's that's it. That's how it works in a nutshell. Any questions? What sort of Ryan? control, if any, does the Southern Baptist Convention hold over local churches? None. Zero. Nope. Local churches have influence over the SBC. The SBC has no authority over local churches. So, for instance, in the 1990s, there was a resolution passed at one of the SBC annual meetings. I forget what year, 92, 93, something like that, in which the convention at its June meeting voted, passed a resolution to censure the Disney Corporation because they had begun to practice this whole thing about gay pride days at Disney. Disney. Okay. So we voted a resolution. But participation of the local churches in those resolutions is purely voluntary. Nobody from the SBC came to anybody's local church to see if they had snow white tapes that they were letting the kids watch. All right. Uh, in fact, if a church, local church wanted to, they could have taken the cross down off the steeple and put Mickey Mouse ears up instead of the cross. Now, that would have been weird, all right, but nobody from Nashville could have come to you and said, you can't do that because you're violating the SBC resolution. Those are always non-binding. Suggestions. Yeah. And their suggestions that come up, they percolate up from below. They're never mandated from the top. And, and there have been times in the history of the SBC when some Lord High Muckety Muck up here at one of these agencies took it upon himself to sort of say, well, this is how we're going to do it as Southern Baptists. And it hadn't taken that long to slap that person down and say, nobody tells a local SBC church what to do except the members of that church. Can I add one thing to that? Yeah. Okay. Um, I have seen at the convention level, uh, this was at the Tennessee Baptist Convention, the state level, in 2018, um, a, a, a group of messengers from a church in Jefferson City, Tennessee, came to the Tennessee Convention. That church had just elected a female pastor. The Tennessee Baptist Convention refused to allow that church to vote on any matter at the convention. Now, they could sit and observe but the Tennessee Baptist Convention refused to allow that church to actually 
vote on anything. But they, but they could not show up at that church's business meeting no. and tell them you right. can't vote on, you cannot elect a woman pastor. Right. So, so, is there a criteria for a church to join the Southern Baptist Convention? There Can are. Anyone join? Very or? loose. Okay. Yeah. The, the church, the local church, has to affirm the doctrine of the Southern Baptist Convention. And again, it's it's not a it's not a, a hard clad. You better agree with all these points or else. It's, mm -hmm. it's a general agreement. Um, and so the churches voluntarily cooperate. That's, that's, that's the legal language. We yeah. voluntarily cooperate together. Right. What's the benefit of being a church in the SBC? Well, some things that Chad helped me see tonight is that in the 20th century, the rise of the business model is just a reality of our world. You have, to, you have to operate as more business-like than a country church of, well, let's just pay the pastor in pork. Okay. So advantages for us being a part of the Southern Baptist Convention, from my viewpoint, are several. We get to cooperate with other churches in missions. That's the first and primary thing. We are not a very wealthy church. But if we give so much money toward a missions program like the Southern Baptist Convention... Our monies get mixed up with more monies, and it's more effective. Okay, so that's number one. Number two, um, a, re a reciprocal event uh, help is we get to benefit from being under a 501c3 status of the Southern Baptist Convention. We don't have to go get our own 501c3. That's expensive. When we formed this church in 2017, 2018, we... It was very expensive to hire a lawyer and very time-consuming to organize a 501c3. We are underneath the Southern Baptist Convention's 501c3. So even in further than that, um, in leadership, I receive a lot of counsel from local convention people. If there's a legal matter that comes up, I have someone to talk to. This church had, and this is a very, not, this is not widely known, but in our second now, our first year in this building, that Christmas, we had a minor incident where a lady felt that she was being approached. Now, that's a, that's a legal issue that a church has to deal with. I called the Tennessee Baptist Convention. I talked, <laughs> I talked to them the very next morning. Here's what went down in our church. Do you have legal counsel that can talk to me? I had a phone call in two hours. No, no, no. The, the, pe the issue that, was, that happened... Yeah, yeah, it was the pastor's wife. No. These were actually visitors who came to our Christmas Eve service. Okay? I, it was not a public thing. I talked to some men and we knew what was going on, but it was dealt with. And I had legal counsel that helped me think through the right way to proceed with it. Okay? Um, so what I'm saying is, what Chad has helped us see tonight is, there is a business reality to functioning as a church, but also we can cooperate with other like-minded Baptist churches and support missions and evangelism together. It's a wonderful thing. I know that was a long answer to a short question, but it's good. Okay. Plus, I'm required to go to the Southern Baptist Church. What's that? I'm required to go to the Southern Baptist. Yeah, and as long as Paul Adkins is a student at Clear Creek Baptist Bible College in Kentucky. 
He must be in the Southern Baptist Church. Yeah, so let's don't change it. <laughs> <laughs> now, that also goes to another thing, Chad brought up, uh, that we, we can also think about. You know, at the Tennessee level of the Baptist Convention, I mean, we are part of the Tennessee Baptist Convention, there are two colleges in the state of Tennessee that does money self-support. Carson Newman in Jefferson City, where uh, Sarah Furman now is now a student, uh, and Union University down in Jackson, Tennessee. Both of those are wonderful Baptist schools that you can get a good Baptist, or a good, just a good education at. So money's help there as well. But still no Southern Baptist discount when you go to restaurants. No. <laughs> Sorry. We wish. No Southern Baptist. No, unless there's a convention in that city, uh, then you can get probably a discount then if you go to the convention. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. What's a 501 C3? A 501 C3 is an IRS uh, requirement, it's a legal document for nonprofit organizations. So we don't pay taxes. If you don't have that, then we have to pay tax. On on offerings that come in. Right. Yeah. I have a question, and it's not SBC or anything like that, but my question is, when in the time of history, since the beginning Baptists were reformed, when did that change for most Baptists? It, um, in America, I'll, I'll answer it that way because it'll be easier, and also because it's something we can we can <laughs> do. Uh, pretty much in the late 19th century, that began to change, but it, it never completely changed. I have a book in my study. Uh, on the Five Points of Calvinism, mm -hmm. written by a Southern Baptist pastor, published by the Baptist Sunday School Board in 1925. Awesome. Well, I know my pastor that we, where we met, um, and I was on the committee on committees mm -hmm. at that particular church. And, uh, I mean, you don't even say the word anything you know, um, no, no, reform, no predestination, no election. It's your choice. You know, Southern Baptist, all the way, first day. And, uh, well, and and I I feel blessed because when I when I was in college, I graduated high school in '72, and when I was in college, which was not a Southern Baptist college, but I began to read scripture and some books that led me in that direction. So when I went to seminary in 77, uh, my ideas were already forming, and I found a few faculty members at Southwestern uh, that held to views kind of like mine, only about four or five students, but and, a, a, does. and and so uh, that has grown and changed in the last uh, forty-five years. 
I'll, can I give you my two cents on that? Yeah, please. I think a lot of the, the liberal slide in theology in the 20th century that Chad mentioned uh, came out of that shift of free will Baptists, mm-hmm. free will thinking of yeah, no, no, Ar- Armenian type thinking of mm-hmm. salvation is my choice. Mm-hmm. Part of that, from an experience that I've had, I think I've seen, <coughs> um, I came out of South, I came out of East Tennessee, the Southern Appalachian region. That's where I grew up. My first pastorate was in Southwest Virginia, Southern Appalachian region. If you look back in American history of that region of the country, um, you had people like John Wesley back in the day as a circuit riding preacher, mm-hmm. Methodist circuit riders, Methodist preachers circuit riding throughout Southern Appalachia and in the South. So you probably had a lot of heavily influence from that too. Many of the churches in the early part of the colonial period into the 1800s, you had a circuit preacher who you would see once a month or once every two months. He would be on a horseback riding through the countryside. Well, when you have that kind of doctrine from the Methodists coming through and you didn't have a regular Baptist preacher all the time, I would argue, perhaps, there's there's probably a strong argument that there's an influence there. Yeah. Strong influence there. Yeah. So um, that's where solid biblical leadership is important for a local congregation. Yeah. 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 I just want to mention something that was talking to someone today, and the term that he used as we were discussing is is a high view of scripture. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's what it is. It's not about tradition. And that's that's reformed thinking. Mm-hmm. Scripture is where we find out who God is, who Christ is, what salvation is. Period. Mm-hmm. Without without scripture, we don't have a clue what that that's is. That's right. So. And the whole Bible is the word of God. Amen. Inerrant word of God. That's another that's right. topic. We talk about the inerrancy movement. All right. Uh, Chad, thank you, brother. Yeah, sure. Thank you. That thank was you. great. Yeah. Amen. So. Again, uh, this all started with the conversation back in October. Uh, Chad, me, and Paul went to the Tennessee Baptist Convention. No, it was November. Was it November or October? November. 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 We went to the Tennessee Baptist Convention in November because it was in that, you know, close to Nashville. Uh, Tennessee Baptist. And uh, Chad and I had a good conversation. Paul had a good conversation. Chad said, Brian, if you ever want me to, I can do a church history talk. And so we talked. We even planned it then. Let's do it in January long before I had knee surgery scheduled. So it worked out well. And so Chad is a great part of our church. Uh, he's a rich, rich treasure. Amen? Amen. We're so, glad that you waited until we remember. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, matter of fact, uh, I've not talked to Chad about this, but I'll say it in public to embarrass him, so he has to say yes. I would love for him to maybe think about a Sunday morning Bible study. If he could pray about that, if the Lord would lead him into maybe leading a Sunday morning. No service. pressure. Uh, no pressure, just everybody in the room hearing the request. Right? So, uh, that way we can pressure There you go, that way you can pray about it. All right? Um, God bless you guys. Next week, next Wednesday, um, please come back. <laughs> so I, I was afraid after Chad was over that everybody would stay home. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, come on.